All right, in his classic book, The Effective Executive, leadership guru Peter Drucker, ever heard of him? He, he's writing to mainly executives, business types, and he asks the question, what's your most valuable resource? And then he starts going through things. He says, uh, you know, some people might think it's money. Money is hard to come by, but it's not money. You can make more money. He says, some people think it's ideas or patents or business plans, but he's like, no, you can always develop new ideas. And he says, some people think it's facilities or locations, but no, you, you can find better facilities. You can move locations. And then he goes through, and then very starkly, he says, some people think it's people, but I'm going to burst this bubble. People think they're irreplaceable, but the fact of the matter is new people are made every day. <laughs> There's new people. All the time. And then he says, time. Time is your most valuable resource. And this is the way he puts it. He says, it's your only truly limited resource. You can always find more money, more ideas, more people. But time, it is what it is. Tick, 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 tick. There's only 24 hours in the day ever. When you run out, you run out. You only have so much time that time is your most valuable resource. And when I look out over this congregation, I don't think I have to convince you of that. All you professionals know the economic value of wasted time. All you young parents desperately know how valuable five minutes without your kids is. You who are more seasoned in life, you know how short life is. So we're in a series called Meant for More. As the title suggests, we're saying that the scriptures teach that our lives, our everyday lives are meant for more. That being a Christian is about more than not going to hell. That being a Christian is, is that we're called to become a kingdom of priests is the language that the scriptures will use. That being a Christian is about more than eating Chick-fil-A and listening to K-Love, although those are great things. Chick-fil-A just this past week. But being a Christian is a way of life. And that way is a man named Jesus. And that we're to follow him. And by walking that way, following behind him, we begin to look and act and think like him, that like him, we should reflect God in all that we do, that it should shape and change how we eat and how we drink and how we shop and how we work and how we vacation and how we spend our time. Each week we've been holding up a different area of life. We're going to talk about family and we're going to talk about entertainment. We've already talked about money. We're talked about work. Today we're going to talk about the topic of time, specifically our calendars. Today, the question that I want to ask is, what does it look like to invest our lives, to use our moment-by-moment time like a Christian? Like, what does it look like to have a schedule that actually reflects God's values, His priority, His kingdom culture that we've been talking about Most specifically, what might it look like to have a Christian calendar? Christian. And by that, I, let's, let's be clear here. I'm not talking about one of those where every new day is a different scripture passage. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. 
And I'm not talking about scheduling God in your calendar. That God time, you know, pastors talk about a lot. Every day you should schedule the first, whatever, 15, 20 minutes a day to read your Bible and pray. And you should do that. But the problem with that very concept is that there's God time and then there's not God time. And the whole point of this series is that all time is God's time. So by all means, set aside that time to meet with God. But I don't want to talk about that today. Today, I want to talk about what happens when we schedule everything in our lives. Our meetings and our grocery shopping and our household projects and our extracurriculars and this and that and this. And all the stuff of life in a way that reflects Jesus Christ, his values, his priority. His kingdom. Our text for today is Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there or check out your app on your phone and follow along. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Now, Ephesians, um, this is a book written by the Apostle Paul, who was a guy who hated God, murderer, etc., etc., met Jesus Christ. Life was radically changed, became the chief spokesman of Christianity, goes around the Roman Empire planting churches. One of them, where he spent a long time, about three years, was a place called Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. All right? This, this great town of Ephesus, this great Roman city, there he planted a church. And this, he's writing a letter to follow up with these people. The first half of the letter, if you take the book of Ephesians, the first half is all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus. This is what he did for you. This is how he forgave you and how he's blessed you and how he's gifted you and how all the things that Jesus has done for you. And then there's a sharp turning point in chapter 4, verse 1, that now, if you believe the gospel, that Jesus did all these things for you, the second half is all about you and me and our response to the gospel. All right, so if you believe the gospel, the second half of the letter is going to say it should change how we relate to one another. It should change how we view our talents, how we deal with anger, how we talk, how we, who we sleep with, how we relate to our kids and our spouses and business, and how we relate, chapter 5, verse 15, to our time. Starts like this. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Be very careful here. The language is strong. He's, it's, it's a warning. He's saying you need to think about it. You need to open your eyes, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't be a fool. You have to be eyes wide open in this. Verse 16. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. On your little handout, if you're following along and you want to, if you're a notes person today, I've got lots of content, so I wanted to give you a few notes. The first thing I want to observe about this negatively, what's Paul warning us about here in this? He's warning us, he's all been out of shape. The first warning he's going to make is that in life, there is a danger of passivity. There is a danger of passivity. If you are unwise... If you're not watching where you're going in life, if you just float along, not paying attention to how you use your schedule and what you're doing with your time, what will happen? Well, evil will happen. 
What he's saying is this, is that as you go through life, if you're unwise, if you don't watch where you're going, life has an incline built into it that you naturally slip into wasted hours, relationships you shouldn't be in, conversations you shouldn't be having. You naturally slip into giving your life to the wrong things or to be being really, really busy with good things so that you don't have time for the best things. Following Jesus, we have to be active, proactive. And in fact, the language he's going to use here is making the most of every opportunity. This is one of those rare times. I usually use this as the NIV, the New International Version translation of the Bible. So Bible is written in Greek. The Apostle Paul writes this in ancient Greek. It's translated. This is a modern translation. There's A few times where the classic good old King James Version, 1500s, actually comes through in a better way. And this is one of those times where I just want to go old King James on you. Check this out. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And what's it say? This is a great literal translation here. He says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming that we are... We must not be passive, but we must redeem the time. Now, this word here that is Paul's using is the exact same word that is used in Exodus. When God sees the Israelites in bondage to a wicked king named Pharaoh. So what does he do? He comes in, he destroys the gods of Egypt. He destroys Pharaoh and he rips them out. He redeems them. This is the same word used of Jesus Christ. He's in heaven. He sees us dying drowning in sin, shame, guilt. What does he do? He takes on flesh. He comes after us. He redeems us. This is the image of, of um, a parent with one of those young kids that's running around in, in a parking lot. And what do you do? The speeding SUV comes. You grab them by the coat and you rip them out of the way. You redeem them. That there are moments in life that have to be redeemed. This is proactive. So, If I was some great inspirational speaker right now, I would stop right here. And we'd start some chant about redeem the time, redeem the time, redeem the time. The only problem is I have no idea what that means. It sounds like seize the day kind of, right? Like, so we all break out our calendars. Now I'm going to fill every possible moment so that I use every possible moment. I'm going to go climb Mount Everest and I'm going to go do this and I'm going to check everything off my bucket list. And maybe, maybe you should do that. But I don't think this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. You see, there's a nuance here that can be lost in translation And I think it's really key. There's a reason why one passage says making the most of every opportunity and the other one says redeeming the time because there are two different words in Greek for time. And this is going to be an important distinction. So the the first word is chronos. Chronos. Can you say that? Chronos. Chronos. Okay, let's go through. This is what we usually mean when we say the word time. This is the tick, tick, tick of the clock. This is quantitative. This is the measure of seconds and minutes and hours and years and decades. Chronos is inevitable and unstoppable. It just keeps going and going and going. In fact, when you ask what time is it, that's chronos. 
This is when we're talking about schedules, due dates, meetings, billable hours, chronos. We live chronos day after day after day. If you have Google Calendars, the app, or you have one of those iPhone you know, calendar apps, this is chronos. So, recognizing the terrible power of chronos, the fact that it's unstoppable, we get a couple English words that kind of reflect this. Uh, chronological, which means arranging things one after the other, but we also get the word Chronic. Chronic, the thing that is unstoppable and will eventually kill you. Chronos, yes. So the Greeks, very imaginatively, personified this in a god. And here's, here's a, a lovely picture of Chronos. Sorry if there's any children in here. This is the, uh, the, the Spanish artist de Goya portrays the god Chronos devouring his children. Do you see, this is what Kronos is. It's the unstoppable march of time that will eventually devour every one of you. Oh, isn't that great? But there's another Greek word pictured very, very differently. It's, it's kairos. So that kairos. So we have Kronos and kairos here. Now, kairos is, is very different. It's not quantitative, but it's qualitative. It's not measured in seconds and minutes, but it's measured in moments. So, the great American poet, Christina Aguilera, <laughs> says it this way, Oh, 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 I just want to feel this moment. And that, my friends, is Kairos. She is singing eloquently about Kairos, that there's a moment that she wants to take in. She wants to experience it. This is what people sing about. This is the moment that people love. This is the moments you write about. This is the moments that change your life. So very technically, this is a defining moment. Not like a particular like, oh, this happened in eight seconds. But it's a moment of your life that will shape you forever. It's a God-ordained moment. It's the moment in which the next word's out of your mouth. The next decision you make, the next thing you do could shape you for good or for bad for the rest of your life. So this is the moment when God shows up to you and says, hey, you, you who don't even really know who I am yet, I want you to take your firstborn son, your only son that you love, and I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him. What does Abraham do? Like that's his moment. He could have said no, but he says okay. And for that moment, that one moment in his life, he becomes what no one else will ever become, the father of faith. All right, it's the moment when, when they're in the boat and everything's going crazy and they see, is that a ghost out there? No, it's Jesus, or at least he says he's Jesus. And that's the moment, and what does Peter do? He says, if it is you, Lord, call me and I will come out to you. And he steps out on the water. It's the moment when Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and he loves him. He loves him. He says, one thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And that rich young ruler has a deciding moment, a kairos moment. And he turns away sad. If you think back over just the last two, three, four, five years, I'm willing to bet that all of us can immediately think to the Kairos moments in our life because you don't easily forget them. 
You know, we have hundreds and thousands of moments with our spouse, good and bad and stuff you don't even think about, but there's two or three that shape your relationship forever. You have hundreds of conversations with coworkers. Hundreds of things happen day after day, but there's two or three that make a difference. You come, some of you, to hundreds of church services and hundreds of podcasts and listen to hundreds of, of, of devotionals, but there's one or two that shape your spiritual life forever. Kairos. The Greeks, uh, here's an here's a ancient relief showing what Kairos look like the god kairos and so the couple things that are worth pointing out here is that he's he's winged both his feet and on back on his back and that's literally where we get the phrase time flies time flies he does but the other thing i want you to notice so we're going to zoom in here is that he has a really unfortunate haircut (laughs) like he does like if you look he's got long long shaggy hair like this is what i imagine um, Donald Trump would look like if he let his hair down. Long hair that goes down to the front, but shiny bald on the back. Shiny bald. And there's a reason for it. There's a poem that goes with this statue. And it says that as he flies by, if you see him coming, you can grab him from the front. You can grab him by his forelocks, by his hair that falls down. But once he's past you, there's nothing to grab hold of. Yeah. Kronos and Kairos. Here's the question. Here's the question. Which word do you think Paul uses when he says, redeem the time? Think think about this. Now, is he saying option A, Kronos, that you need to break out your schedule and use every possible moment. You need to schedule every possible moment of your life so that you don't waste any time in your life. Kronos, or is he saying Kairos, that you need to be waiting, watching for the moment, the moment that's going to shape and define your life, that's going to shape your heart, that's going to shape your family, that's going to shape your community, that's going to shape eternity. Yeah, that's right. Kairos. That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul's concern is not that you're going to waste four hours watching grown men fight over a ball today. His concern is that you might go through life not paying attention and miss the most important things. Miss the moments where God shows up. So, as Americans, we are obsessive compulsive about Kronos. Like, everything is scheduled. We're all about, oh, I could fill this and fill that, and I could add all these things to my schedule, effectively using my time at work and at home and trying to uh, achieve as much as I can and add as many experiences as I, as I can and have the fullest schedule. He who has the fullest schedule wins, right? That's the way our world seems to function. But God, in his scriptures, seems that he couldn't care less about Kronos. For us, one of the most offensive things you can do is waste someone's time, right? Like if you show up late or you just completely waste my time, I'm, this is why we hate the cable guy and the DMV. It is, right? I walk into the DMV and I immediately feel like Kronos is devouring my soul. It's oh, like, that's an hour of my life I'll never get back. Oh. But God... Seems really great with just wasting huge quantities of time. Have you ever noticed how long he waited before he even showed up to talk to Abraham? 
That dude was 75 years old when he started. Have you ever noticed how long Joseph spent in prison? Years. We don't know exactly how long, but he was 17 when he was sold into slavery, and he was 30 before he was elevated into Pharaoh's court. There's a lot of years in there somewhere where he got kicked out of Potiphar's house and was in prison, just sitting there, rotting away. Moses spent four decades of his life as a shepherd. Jesus. We know almost nothing about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. You ever ever consider that? The Apostle Paul spent years in prison on and on. I mean, almost every character in the Bible, you could see massive quantities of wasted chronos. But what the Bible never misses are those kairos moments. Kairos is in the Bible spoken of as like a piece of fruit. That time is like fruit. Right? There's this window of time where you have those bananas, you buy them too green, and then there's that window of time where you can eat them. They're just flecked with brown and have a golden hue, and they're great. But if you wait too long, you're in the banana bread territory, right? <laughs> so there's this window of time, and the same thing in life, you have this window of time, this short window of time, when time, an opportunity, a moment is flying your way, you can grab it by the facial hair, or you've missed it. So... To give God's value of time here, let's, uh, let's Gospel of John, right? If you take the Gospel of John and you say, this is a story about Jesus, right, and his life on earth. So let's look at the proportions here. Uh, how much time is spent on Jesus' early years? Um, well, if you consider the creation of everything in the universe as early years, um, there's a chapter, but that doesn't really count, does it? No. So nothing. Nothing about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. And then how much time do we have in the Gospel of John to describe the the three years of ministry that he spends on this earth? Well, if if this stage is the Gospel of John, then it goes all the way to the middle part. We get the first three years of Jesus' life, right? Well, then what's the rest? What's the other half of the Gospel of John? It's the last week of of Jesus' life. He spends half the gospel on one week, seven days. Do you see why? Because that is the fullness of time. That's the moment. If you miss every other moment, it doesn't matter. But if you miss that moment, what Jesus did from the time he was recognized as as the king coming into Jerusalem to the time he died on the cross, if you miss what happens there, you miss everything. Kairos, Kairos. This is how God views time. And if you think about this, this kind of makes sense. Not to get too technical here, but theologians talk about God existing in the eternal now. He's outside of space and time, which means that for God, there is no past, present, or future. There's just now. There is no chronos for God. The eternity is not, has nothing to do with past, present, or future. The only thing that matters in eternity is kairos. Mm. So, what does this have to do with having a Christian calendar? What might it look like to have a Christian calendar? Now, the first thing that we, we said already is you've got to be proactive. You've got to redeem the time. And the problem is, is um, I want all of you to go out and redeem your time. What you're going to do is you're going to walk out of here and you'll be like, oh, let me check my schedule real quick. 
I think I have time on Thursday night after I put the kids to bed. Or in two weeks from now, there's a, there's a little bit of space in my afternoon. That Kronos has so filled our lives that we don't have time to recognize whether we even have Kairos moments or not. So, my recommendation to get practical here is that we need to go Old Testament on this thing. And so I need seven volunteers. Seven volunteers. So you extroverts, come on. This is your moment. Seven volunteers, come on up on stage. Come on. Seriously, this is easy. Come on. Seriously, I need seven people to hold signs for me. One. Who else? Two. This will not be painful. You're just going to hold some signs. What we're going to do here is I'm going to show you, if you go to the Old Testament, how many we got here? One, two, three. Perfect. Perfect. If you guys would just spread out here real quick. Can any of you, real quick, can any of you um, play a brass instrument? Anyone? French horn? All right. So you have to be right here, my friend. Sorry, you're going to get bumped down. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. All right. We're good. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 is the one place in the scriptures where God actually pulls out a calendar and says, hey, you want to see what a calendar that glorifies me looks like? I'm going to show it to you. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to go back and practice the Jewish calendar. I'm not saying that. But I am saying if we want a glimpse of a calendar that reflects God's glory, this is a really good place to start. All right. All right, so all of you can read Leviticus 23 on your way home, which I'm sure you'll do. But for now, let's just go over this. First, the calendar in the Leviticus chapter 23 and throughout that book is, is based on a series of sevens. All right? And in that, we're going to see it's primarily highlighted by a list of seven feasts, seven great feasts that mark the moments. Let's have you guys step over just a little bit. Jeff, if you can let me... Move this out of the way. If you can just step all the way to the side there. Now, you stay right in the middle, Pentecost. You're going to be right here. Now, I want you guys to all scoot down towards this TV. Now, this right here, if we scoot down just a little bit further, a little bit further. I want, I want her to be all by herself. All right, so in the spring, you're going to have three great feasts, and these are all lumped together. This is three days in a row, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits. In the middle of the summer is a feast called Pentecost, all right? You may have heard of it. It literally means 50. It's also called the Feast of Weeks in some translations. And then in the fall, we're going to have three other great feasts. Trumpets, 10 days later, you have Atonement, and then Finally, the Feast of Tabernacles on the 14th day of the seventh month. So let's wrap our minds around this for a minute. What is God doing here when he lays out the calendar and he could schedule anything he wants in our lives? What does he decide to schedule? We start with this, Passover. Passover is this great celebration where, where we come together and we celebrate the fact that we are saved that, that we, nothing we did, but God came after us. He redeemed us by the blood of a lamb. That all the people, remember they were in Egypt and they had to take this lamb by faith. Death was coming. But if by faith you take the lamb, you slit its throat, you cut it, and you cut it open, you take the blood and you put it over the post and lintel of the door. And then you enter into the house. You have a Passover feast and you, this is celebrated by drinking lots of wine, blood of the lamb, and eating the lamb itself. Right? You celebrate this every year to commemorate we're saved. We were slaves, but we've been set free. On the next, very next day after that, 
started what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is matzah. You can eat that if you want, Matt. Matzah right here is just, it's, you know, it's bread without leaven. It's the same stuff we would use for communion, right? This is the stuff that is uh, just without yeast. In the scriptures, that yeast itself is a symbol of sin and decay and all the things that ruin us. That after we're saved, we're preserved now, and that the yeast is removed, that the sin is removed, the decay, the decaying forces of sin are removed from our lives. And then the very next day, you wake up, and what do you do? You shake a whole bunch of grain. This is first fruits. So on the feast of first fruits, this is the this is the springtime. And we just we started the harvest. You take the very first piece of the harvest, the very first stuff of grain that grows up, you take it with you to Jerusalem and you celebrate. You give it back to God saying, This is only the beginning. That everything I have is from you. And this is the only the beginning. That if I give this to you, I'm trusting you to provide for me for the days to come. I'm trusting that if I give you the first of my harvest, you'll bring the rest. Do you get it? Passover, we're saved. Unleavened bread, we're preserved. First fruits, this is only the beginning. Then everyone goes home. And let me tell you how long. For seven weeks. One, two, three, four five, six, seven weeks, you're at home, and then you turn around and come back. The harvest is now done. It's now full-on summer, and you come back to this thing called Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is also called the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost literally in, in Greek means 50. It's 50 days later from first fruits that Pentecost comes up, and Pentecost celebrates the coming of God to Mount Sinai to give his people the Ten Commandments. So God shows up on Mount Sinai, he engulfs the whole mountain in fire, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments, which is oddly enough celebrated by two loaves of challah bread. Huh? Yeah. These are the Ten Commandments right there. (laughs) Two tablets of the Ten Commandments. You're saved. You've been preserved. This is only the beginning. And now he's going to say, you can know God personally, that he saved you for a purpose. He didn't just save you from something. He saved you to something, to know him, to walk with him, to follow his law. Then you go home and then you wait till the very end of the fall. You want to try it? And on the first day of the seventh month, you would hear this in every town. (laughs) <laughs> nah, it's not, not quite the same as a French horn. Ooh. All right. Now, I think it takes some practice here. It's a, I've never used a shofar before. I mean, I've, I've tried. So that's a shofar. It's a ram's horn. It's a horn that would be blown in every town about. And the whole point of that blowing, that blasting of the ram's horn, is a warning. It's a wake-up call. You need to Repent. Judgment is coming. And traditionally, they call this, to this day, if you go among Orthodox Jews, they call this the days of all begin. There's ten days in which the days of all were traditionally the books are opened in heaven. The book of life and the book of death, basically. And God's going to look through the books and see where your name is at. And traditionally, the language they use is that all of humanity will pass before God like a herd of sheep. So for 10 days, here's your chance to repent. And then on the 10th day of the 7th month, (laughs) I'm a little scared to give Kyle this. 
It's judgment day. It's a day of atonement, Yom Kippur. On this day, you're going to take two goats. They're going to come to the the temple and the high priest is going to literally slaughter one of the goats. He's going to drain out his blood. He's going to take the blood into the Holy of Holies and he's going to sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat, he's going to confess all the sins of all the people on it and he's going to drive this goat out of town and then off of a cliff because your sin deserves death and banishment. And if you don't trust in a sacrifice, it's coming for you. But at the end of that day, that's where they read the famous, as far as the east is from the west, God's removed your sin from you. That if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse you. And so that's what happens. And then after he's cleansed you, after sin's been judged, then he invites us back to the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. This is what one probably looked like back in the day. This is what they actually look like today. That everyone's invited to Jerusalem. And we're all going to live in these little huts, these little tabernacles, these little tents. And we're going to eat and we're going to drink. And literally, let's party. It's the best party of the year. If you read through in Leviticus chapter 23, this is what the command is. God commanded them to rejoice before the Lord for seven days. And they took this seriously. Oh, sorry. I almost left you out. Oh, sorry. That, that didn't quite work. <laughs> so, when God gets a hold of a calendar, this is what he does to it. This is what he does to it. If God says, if I could do anything with a calendar, this is what I'd do with it. And let's talk about this real quick. Let's think about this. What is he doing? And the first thing I want you to notice is that this calendar right here, what does it look like to have a Christian calendar? When we bring this question, what does it look like to have a calendar that reflects God? This calendar literally reflects Jesus. Do, do you see it? So what, uh, what day did Jesus die? Hint, when was Good Friday? It was a Passover. And when did he die specifically? John chapter 19 says he died at the very hour when they were sacrificing those sheep. That when we come to Passover, we should say the, the, the Lamb of God has been slain and his blood was put upon a cross. And when you go underneath it, you can know I've been saved. Passover. What happened the very next day, Saturday, after Jesus was slain? He was put into a tomb, but did he decay? Did he rot? Did he just go away forever? No, that Psalm 16 was fulfilled, that God will not let his Holy One see decay, that he was preserved in the grave. And then what happened on Sunday morning? He rose from the dead, resurrected, the first of his kind. And the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he is the first fruit. Christ is the first fruits. That a harvest is coming. He's the very first that's presented to God. But if you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ, you too will be part of this. That this is only the beginning. That the whole world is going to be renewed through what Jesus Christ did. And then God's people waited. Remember, they waited and waited and waited and then they went to this upper room and on the feast of Pentecost, while they're waiting around, what happens? God himself descends in fire over their heads and he writes the law, not the two tablets of the law, but his very law is written on their hearts. It's called the Holy Spirit. Ever heard of it? 
So, so Jesus, we're saved. We're preserved. Jesus is resurrected. It's only the beginning. And the law has been written on our hearts. We can know God personally. And then the Apostle Paul says, and now this is where we live as Christians. We are between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. That all of us are waiting. You read 1 Corinthians. You read 1 Thessalonians. All of us are waiting that one day there's going to be a trumpet sound. A trumpet blast. And that's your last call to repentance. Because after that, Christ is coming and there will be a day of judgment that sin must be paid for. And those who do not trust in the sacrifice will have to face the wrath. But those who trust the sacrifice are invited to the greatest party you've ever seen. Let's give these guys a round of... You guys can go ahead and go. Thanks. Just, yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. God gives us this Jewish calendar that literally reflects his plan for salvation. Literally reflects him and what he's doing in the world. Um, For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews are practicing this year after year after year, showing the world, showing the world, showing the world. This is what God's doing. This is what God's doing. This is what God's doing. So here's the question. What does this look like as a Christian? Like, I don't know about you. I mean, maybe we shouldn't stand out on our front porch like blowing a trumpet. (laughs) Judgment's coming! (laughs) But maybe we should. I mean, doesn't it seem ridiculous that the Jews who function in just these shadows and these pictures and images, that they should reflect God more clearly than us? who have the very spirit of God in us? Like, doesn't it seem like our very calendars, the way we schedule our time, should be marked by the signs of grace, of God's work, that we're saved, that we're preserved. This is only the beginning. God's with us, and he's doing something great. He's inviting us to the great feast. If you look through the list of all the things that God puts before us on his calendar, what does he include on his calendar? Worship. Gratitude. His work on our behalf. Music. Generosity. Feasting. Dancing. Eating really good food. Family. If we look through God's calendar, what's missing? Work. Productivity. Any signs of competition? 